Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, rebuilding Christendom, restoring Catholic culture and tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, editor of One Peter Five, together with contributing editor Kennedy Hall, and we're joined today by Miss Julia Maloney. Julia, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So Julia, if you don't know her, Julia Maloney is the author of the St. Gallen Mafia, which has been released today, published by Tan Books. And that's the subject of our conversation. She holds a bachelor's degree in English from Yale and a master's degree in English from Harvard. And Julia, is this your first full-length book? Yes, it is. Excellent. Well, it's uh, I had the pleasure of reading an advanced copy, and it is a marvelous text. And so we'll be getting to that in just a few minutes. Before we do, I wanted to point readers and viewers to the series that we have on that's related to this. Julia's already written two articles for 1 Peter 5 on this, and that is the Synod Watch. This is a collection of articles in which we will anal analyze the current plans and of synodality to find out what that means and for the faithful to find out what that means and what it really means for us. And uh, Julia has two articles up there at 1 Peter 5. And so that's linked below along with the book um, on the St. Gallen Mafia. So let's talk about this book. Um, I wanted to start, Julia, by asking you um, if we can start with what is the nature of the evidence for this claim about the St. Gallen Mafia, because typically many people will start by dismissing this as a complete conspiracy theory. That's just, you know, some crazy new Vatican theory. Uh, so what is the nature of this evidence, Julia? And what do you, how do you respond to that initial dismissal of this, this uh, story? Um, I think the, the clearest evidence that we have for the existence of this mafia was definitely when Cardinal Godfrey Daniels um, of the Mafia said that we had this group and we called ourselves a Mafia <laughs> and, and was joking about it. So we, we have one of the culprits, you know, right there boasting about it. In other words, the, the evidence of this um, suggests that there was a part of them that needed to boast about it and that felt comfortable enough in their plans to boast about it. Now, there are other so his biography um, is cited in the text and we learn a lot of things. Like we learn what happened at their 1999 meeting where Martini said he wanted, excuse me, Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, the leader, said he wanted a new council. So a, a lot of this, this is publicly available information that they wanted out there once they felt comfortable enough for it. And there are other texts, um, Martini, who I was just speaking about a moment ago, he wrote a book called Night Conversations, and it was like an interview um, of him. And he, he talks about so many things that um, are, are part of the St. Gallen agenda. He talks about the ordination of married men. He talks about deaconesses. He talks about attacks on humanae vitae. Um, he, he talks about the surprises of the Holy Spirit. Um, that sounds familiar. Um, so, so the text, there, there are over 600 footnotes in this book. 
And this is all publicly available information that, you know, you can just find the footnote, you can look it up if, if you are incredulous about anything that, that's going on here. Yeah, this is one of the things I loved about your book is that, yeah, it's completely well documented. There's about five to 10 footnotes on every page. Um, what I love about what you do, Julia, is that you really connect the dots for us that goes back decades. Um, so can you bring us back to where do we see the beginnings of this St. Gallen Mafia group? Uh, when do they first start to organize and start to try to take action? Um, so technically they, they started in 1996 and um, they, they would always meet annually in January and it was at or near St. Gallen, Switzerland. Um, allegedly they broke up in 2006. Now there, there was a kind of precursor to the mafia and my, my colleague, Micah Hickson of LifeSite News talks about this, this um, group called the CCEE that um, became kind of like this, this liberal group that was talking about collegiality, communion for the divorced and civilly remarried, these sorts of you know, left issues. Um, this was, th their head was Basil Hume, who was a mafia member, well, future mafia member, let's say, um, you know, in I think the late 70s, early 80s. And then the leader of the CCEE became Martini. So Martini was heading the CCEE and literally Micah Hickson again has a wonderful article documenting this. Um, Pope John Paul II in effect ousted him in the early 90s. And Daniels, um, who I alluded to earlier, was part of this group as well. So um, they, they became kind of disillusioned when this pressure group, um, when they were ousted, ousted or sidelined from this pressure group. And sure enough, just a few years later, that's when they actually founded the mafia and started meeting according to the schedule that I gave you. Can I ask, Was um, <clears throat> is this different than the Catacombs Pack group, or is it linked, or is, is that sort of a precursor? Do you know anything about that with Cardinal Kafara, et cetera? Um, as far as I know, that was something separate. I'm not sure if, um, if there were any people. I would have to look at the list again of, of who was in the, the Catacombs Pack to see if um, there were any mentors, because um, Cardinal uh, Swenens of Belgium was a mentor and predecessor to Cardinal Daniels. Mm -hmm. um, so if he was involved in any way, there may be a connection there. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I thought the catacombs was more South American. Let. It was a mix. It was a mix, but uh, it's funny. The man who was one of the leaders of that was an inspiration to Klaus Schwab, <laughs> which was unearthed recently. Which is anyway. It maybe it's. I'm sure it's all connected in some sulfuric way. I just wasn't sure if there was a specific connection with uh, actual, you know, on paper sort of stuff. Yeah, certainly connected in a sulfuric way. Uh, but it does seem that um, Julia, that Cardinal Martini is kind of the ringleader. Is is that mm -hmm. correct? 
Would that be accurate? Yeah, um, he was the one who founded or co-founded um, the, the group in the, the 1990s. And then um, he, in 2003, he did need to be replaced because he had Parkinson's disease. And that was when um, the Cardinal Achilles Silvestrini, in effect, replaced him. But at the same time, Martini, he's like this larger than life force. Um, he, even though he's not technically a member, according to Daniels's biography, he's not a member after Silvestrini replaces him. He's just an alum. Um, at the same time, before the 2005 conclave, Martini is meeting with Silvestrini, Daniels, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, Cardinal Walter Casper, Cardinal Carl Lehman, you know, just these major players from the group. Uh, he's meeting and he appears to have been kind of calling some of the shots um, around the time of the 2005 conclave. And of, of course, um, he, the important thing to know about Martini is that later he called himself an antipope, A-N-T-E, pope, like an antecedent, a precursor and preparer for the Holy Father. And he, he seemed, now we know in retrospect, he seemed to be um, announcing himself as a precursor for Benedict's successor, Pope, pope Francis, of course. So was, is that... Uh... I guess, what can you say of the, what were the goals, the stated goals of the St. Gallen Mafia in the 1990s? Was it just to elect a Pope Francis? Um, so they definitely cared about the papacy and the word, um, the, the, our understanding of things is that they initially wanted Martini to be Pope and they were an anti-Ratzinger group um, in other words, they, the glue that held them together, it wasn't so much an idea. It was a person and an opposition to that person. And the person was Ratzinger. Um, so Ratzinger, uh, they talked about a lot of things. This is in Daniels's biography, but they talked about collegiality, um, which, which goes along with synodality. In other words, kind of decentralizing the church, democratizing the church, that sort of thing. Um, Henry Sear, who wrote The Dictator Pope, talks about how these are, these are code words for a liberal agenda. Any, anytime you know, I'm talking and you hear the word collegiality or synodality, kind of you know, think code word for liberal agenda. And they also, we know from Daniels's biography that they were talking about things like um, the church's stance on homosexuality. They were talking about communion for the divorced and civilly remarried. Um, they were talking about deaconesses. Um, they, they were talking about changes to, it's vague. They were talking about changes to priests, but um, the other way that we know the blueprint is a 1999 speech that Martini gave um, at the at a synod, and he he said that we needed to look at certain knots and and change and try to envision change in them. And he talked about um, 
again, he used a code, but it was code for basically what I just said, priestly celibacy, um, community for the divorced and civilly remarried, um, deaconesses. Um, those were kind of the key, key three things, which all, which these things sound very familiar, of course, because we, we've been waging, seeing these battles in the Francis pontificate. Yeah. And, and, um, Absolutely. This, and I, I want to get to Francis as well, obviously, eventually. But one of the things that you do, one of the dots that you connect a lot is um, you connect also with Vatican II and particular players at Vatican II, for example, Rahner and Congar, and not not only obviously Ratzinger. So what are the connections back to players at Vatican II or thereafter? Yeah, I, I bring up Vatican II because Vatican II was just like a, a seminal moment for these, these men because they, the mafia members, they grew up in the, the pre-Vatican II church. So they had these beautiful, you know, these really kind of nostalgic or beautiful stories about, um, serving mass or doing first Fridays, Friday devotions, and just anything, you know, whatever you can imagine the preconciliar church to be like, they were growing up in that. And then as they are, you know, in their young adulthood and kind of discovering their vocation or, or beginning to live out their vocation, that's when the Second Vatican Council happens. And the Second Vatican Council to them, you know, obviously people people battle. There's a battle for what the Second Vatican Council means, obviously. But for them, it meant an upheaval. It, it meant something revolutionary. And um, Karl Rahner, I talk about in the book because he he's been called the, the most important person at the Second Vatican Council. Um, he also, the historian Roberto de Mattei has a lot of important material about Rahner. And he, de Mattei says that Rahner is Pope Francis's grandfather and Martini is Francis's father, so to speak. So he, he was kind of a logical person to talk about and um, the important thing for me with Rahner is what he did after the council. Um, he had this little book called The Shape of the Church to Come. And um, a scholar, an Italian scholar named Stefano Fontana had an article about how that was kind of, it was kind of a blueprint that seems pretty um, really appropriate to today's historical moment because it talks about synodality, it talks about ordination of married men, it, it talks about communion, it, it explicitly talks about communion for the divorced and civilly remarried as well. So th these are just, we're gonna be talking, you know, multiple times about these issues. So, so Rahner was trying, you know, Rahner was trying to make inroads on some of these issues in the 70s and um, what do you know? Carl Lehman was Rahner's assistant and a future St. Gallen Mafia member. Casper uh, has spoken very, very well of Rahner and 
Casper signed a memo against priestly celibacy that Rahner and Lehman wrote. So there's, I think there's a pretty tight connection there. Um, Congar is, I, I make kind of more of a connection with him and Francis, um, and I can kind of go into that maybe a little bit, a, a little bit later. But um, he 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 talked a lot about patience in reforming the church, and that's kind of and that's kind of a key word with Pope Francis. Time is greater than space, so kind of incrementalism and the practicalities of of reform. Yeah, it's very interesting what you bring up with Rahner. Um you say on page uh, 34, you say, um, as Vatican II drew to a close, Rahner gave a lecture calling the council the beginning of a beginning. He was, said Casper, cautiously pursuing further developments. In 67, Rahner helped the German bishops, German bishops, draft a letter declaring that the church can be subject to error and has in fact erred in the past. And then he argued that Humanae Vitae was not irreformable, and then he talked, as you said, talked about the shape of the church to come and this synodality. And that's really, um, it's a, a very adroit way to put that in terms of him being the grandfather, Martini's the father, and Francis of Francis. Uh, so it seems that there's been this click of these liberal priests or bishops at Vatican II and after Vatican II trying to bring about this thing. It finally gave birth to the St. Gallen Mafia in the 1990s. And they were just bringing forward this this same vision. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so St. Gallen Mafia, we've got Martini. Any other players you want to mention in particular besides Martini before we get into Benedict and Francis? Um, I guess I'll just mention that like in the book, the way I structure it is I have, so the first chapter is, the 2005 conclave and it's called the next pope and that's kind of from the perspective of everyone and then the second chapter is called Silvestrini and we've talked about him a little bit and so there's um he's I just want to mention him for a moment because he's a maneuverer he's attacked he, he's good at um being tactical and strategic and he was, he seemed like he was pretty fixated on the succession of Pope John Paul II. Um, and it seems like he was the one who kind of um, either identified Bergoglio as, um, Cardinal Bergoglio as a good contender for the 2005 conclave or, um, or, if he didn't identify him, he at least embraced him. So um, that's those are a few things to know about Silvestrini. Um, the next chapter is called Martini. And then the next chapter is, I think it's Daniil's. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about him, but um, if we if we talk about, um, you know, the, the Belgian contingent at Vatican II, that's an interesting story in and of itself because you had a lot of subversive figures and you had um, specifically, I talked about Cardinal Swinnens, but he brought um, a professor named Phillips, I think Gerard Phillips, I think. Um, and Phillips represented a middle way and, and 
Roberto de Matei talks about how it's the Belgian middle way. And he, he talks about how he knew how to get things passed, like because he had parliamentary experience. And so he was kind of like a politician and he knew what kind of language to put in so that something would be acceptable to conservatives and liberals at the same time. And he knew that you could change one word in something and utterly change the substance of a passage. So um, this was kind of the world that Daniels lived in and Daniels became the successor of Swinnens. And Swinnens had um, agitated, agitated against Humanae Vitae and um, Daniels picked up that fight as well. So there, there's clearly another genealogy um, going on here. And then the next chapter is called Casper. And um, I guess I, I won't really go into Casper too much because people, people already know a lot about him, but um, Casper, I, I think that um, the fact that in the seventies, you know, he, he was already working on communion for the divorced and civilly remarried in the seventies. And he was, he signed that memo on celibacy in 1970. So here you find again, incrementalism. I mean, he didn't give up for, for decades, literally. And um, so, so this is a story that um, nothing, nothing is appearing out of thin air. There's a, there's a definite genealogy. And in all your research, because it's always astonishing when we look at um, these men who seem to work for the church's destruction. I know in some cases they work for what they think is some sort of utopic idea, let's say, of, of the church. But in reality, a lot of them, you wonder whether they're even, uh, if they're atheists or not. I mean, you wonder why on earth would someone do such a thing? Why would they take such a plan of life? Why would they you know, work so hard and, and deal with men like the McCarricks of the world, et cetera? Just from your general opinion, this is obviously not, you know, de fide, but when you research men like this, um, do you believe, do you think they're even believers? I mean, do you think they even believe in Catholicism or is it just sort of, uh, I guess an extension of a sort of a Masonic plot to, to do something for, I don't know, some other ulterior motive. What is your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, when I think about these people, I, I think about, um, Pope St. Pius X talking about the modernists. I think that he, he talked about um, kind of their, their psychology, basically that, that they, they want to stay in the church and they want to subvert it and infiltrate it. And, you know, they, they won't break away. You know, they, 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 they don't have, I don't know if you want to use the word integrity, but you know, they, they won't just admit that maybe they don't believe something and, and leave. They would rather change the church. And um, I, I think that there's there's some of that going on here. And I think if we go back to Kangar, he basically said he, he wanted to reform the church without a, without a schism. And stay in and he taught how you know how to use patience so that you can reform you can incrementally reform the church without having that traumatic moment of schism and um i think that these men i i don't i don't know why i don't know if they were just rebelling against the childhoods that they had um i don't know 
um, how much of this was just in the air when when Vatican II was in session or what. Um, but they they were absolutely convinced, I think, that they, they were going to stay in the church, they were going to have positions of power, and they were going to change the church in, in their own image. So, so John Paul II, the pontificate of John Paul II is very long. It's um, like 25 years or so. Um, I thought that John Paul II had promoted Martini at some point, but he, you said he ousted him. Was, was there like a shift in, in John Paul II's pontificate overall where he sort of started going after them or did they end up getting um, promoted anyways? Yeah, that, that's a really important question. Um, I think that John Paul II, from what I understand, um, he had visited with Martini in the, in the 1970s, and he, he liked Martini. And he specifically, Martini was a biblical scholar, and he specifically at the, I think the end of 1979, um, decided that he wanted Martini to be the new Archbishop of Milan. And I think Martini was a little skeptical and hesitant at that point. And I, if I remember correctly, John Paul II, you know, just said, you know, you're, you're, you're gonna do great. And, um, and, and Martini accepted. So that was in, end of 1979 and then 1980. Um, this this moment where, where he was kind of ousted was somewhere around 1991. Um, but I don't, as far as I can tell, there's not really a campaign, you know, going after these guys because like at the 1985 Synod, who were some of the leaders at the 1985 Synod? Casper and Daniels. They were writing the synod reports in 1985. Um, I, I think that they, they, they were still at this point um, pretty subterranean, pretty underground, so to speak. They, um, when they were on the surface, they, they, their convictions, you know, that they didn't, there weren't headlines like in the 80s you know, saying that Cas you know, Casper or Daniels wants to overturn Humanae Vitae or something like that. That that kind of drama comes later and stuff. So um, I think, yeah, I think I would say there's a mixed, um, a kind of a mixed, uh, a mixed form of, of form of posture against uh, Martini in the time of John Paul II, but you could say that about like the the way that he treated many many different um, churchmen as well. Yes, yeah, it's it's a very complicated time. There's a lot of very lots of unanswered questions. Um, I'm reminded that Walter Casper was actually one of the founders of Communio in 1972 with Joseph Ratzinger, which was kind of like a breakaway group from the more liberal school at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I know Charles Murr writes about how after the assassination attempt, John Paul II did have some uh, change of heart a bit in terms of trying to go after the liberals a little bit, like he did a little bit, but 
he still kept a lot of these close ties, like you said. So it's because this big mixture um, coming into the conclave of 2005. Um, at that point, it's been decades. You have the St. Gallen Mafia had been organizing. Um, I've, I've, I've always thought that it seems like John Paul II tried to bring the church to a bit more conservative reading of Vatican II, but without kind of disciplining all the liberal heretics and booting them out of the church and just trying to play nice with them. Um, and it seems like that's the problem. Um, what, what do you see as, as the, the failures at, at, two, at the point of 2005? Uh, what do you see as what could have been? Do you think John Paul II should have cracked down more? Um, how do you see going into 2005? Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, again, Pope St. Pius X, um, you know, he, he definitely, he lived in a, a different historical moment, but he at least outlined the posture of trying to combat modernism and, um, I, I think that I think that John Paul II, you know, had many. He he had a, a mixed legacy in in the sense that you know he he had some some great triumphs, but um, on on the specific issue of um, combating the modernists, one might argue that you know he, he could have done more as well, but at the same time. Um, I just want to go back to this this idea that um, Martini and the St. Gallen Mafia, they, they moved away from the CCEE and into meeting secretly in Switzerland and talking about these issues secretly. So a, a lot of it... Um, it, it would be for a later historical moment for it to really erupt. It would be for the next pontificate for for it to erupt. And of course, that's what that's what you know we'll get to it in a moment. That's what Benedict had to to live with um, with the the kind of war that they were that they were getting ready to wage. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So they kind of go underground a little bit. I mean, they like you said, it was a heady moment at Vatican II, 1960s, and then we got Humanae Vitae comes down. For all mm -hmm. his faults, Paul VI did do that right, and it was, you know, that was his one triumph. Um, so what do we know about what does happen in 2005? What do we know about the conclave? What kinds of things uh, can we know for certain about what happened next? Yeah, so, so the book starts with, the 2005 conclave and um it's it's probably my favorite chapter to that, that i wrote i i reread it over and over again sometimes to just kind of clarify what happened in my mind but also it's just kind of fun to read um if i if i can say that um so this was i think the main thing to know about this is that a couple days after the um funeral of John Paul II, Silvestrini, Martini, Casper, Daniels, Murphy O'Connor, Lehman, they're all meeting to talk about how to prevent Joseph Ratzinger from becoming Pope. 
So they, um, there's even, I talk about this in the book, there's even a photo that they took that um, it's, I wish I, I, I wish I had this photo, but apparently they look like they're kind of lined up like a football team and um, it's, it's the mafia, you know, photo op that we have that, that was published shortly after the conclave um, because they, they apparently, they, they didn't want to keep everything completely secret. This is an, another instance where it's like they kind of want to boast about it a little bit. Now, they met before the conclave, like the eve of the conclave, and um, it sounds like they, they did want Cardinal Bergoglio to be their candidate. But the important piece of the puzzle to understand is that, um, according to my research, and I'm, I'm working off of what Nicholas Diat is saying in his book on Pope Benedict, um, Martini did not want Cardinal Bergoglio under any circumstances because I, I think he thought that Bergoglio was not liberal enough. But Silvestrini wanted Bergoglio. So there was this sort of division. I think that hampered their efforts because in the first round of voting, um, it appears that Martini got nine votes and Bergoglio got 10 votes. Um, Martini wasn't ever gonna be a candidate for Pope. He had Parkinson's. They could have given those votes to Bergoglio but I think that's a, a sign of some of their paralysis. Basically, eventually what happens is um, Ratzinger has enough votes to where people can tell that he will probably win. And um, then it, it, it gets really mysterious because it appears, it appears that Martini gave his votes to Ratzinger um, told his supporters to vote for Ratzinger. It appears that um, Bergoglio told his voters he didn't want to be Pope and told them to vote for Ratzinger. In other words, the, the mafia, which had been agitating against, against Ratzinger this whole time, appears to have at the last minute helped elect Ratzinger. So it, it's a mystery to what, what exactly happened, that we do know that there was some kind of lunchtime conversation between Martini and Ratzinger just before the last scrutiny happened. Um, some, people think, some people ask, oh, is there, was there some sort of agreement there? But I, I, I personally, um, I, I, I'm not sure that there was a pact or an agreement or anything um, there. I, I think maybe there was a different kind of conversation about, um, you know, maybe expressing, maybe Martini expressing the hope that, that Ratzinger would be a transitional pope. Maybe he knew that Ratzinger was open to being a transitional pope. Um, these are, this is where um, sort of the book, the book reports the different facts that we have on the scene, but I have a kind of narrative reticence about some of this stuff. In other words, I, I don't like to overinterpret. 
um, too much or be too heavy handed about this because I understand that people will read things in different ways. Um, so all I say in there is basically Ratzinger denied that there was ever a pact. And, um, and then I posed the question, was Martini up to something that wasn't a pact? Up to something else that, that is short of an actual kind of agreement with, with Ratzinger about what, what to do. So it's, it's a very thorny issue. Well, if anything, this story and <clears throat> others like it should rid the uh, modern error of this idea that the Holy Ghost miraculously picks every single pope as if it's a uh, divine fiat that so-and-so is pope. That's something that I don't know. I don't know where that idea came from. and It needs to die because it's not the truth at all. Um, now, one character that I find fascinating in the 1970s, and he did die before this St. Gala Mafia was a, a real thing, but he's part of that group that was the grandfather group that you've talked about. Um, it's Cardinal Vilo. And I know that Cardinal Gagnon had done a lot of work and he had presented to three different popes the dossier that he put together, saying he was a Freemason, etc. Did Cardinal Vilo and uh, that uh, characters within the Vatican at the time of him, because he was there when uh, John Paul II came in, and I think if we went back to JP2 for just a second, one of his fatal flaws, for all the good he did, you know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt for magnanimity, and he was a great diplomat and statesman and spokesperson and things. He really was a, a great media pope, uh, but he did spend a lot of time on the road and didn't spend a lot of time at home. And um, and he did con he did basically confirmed everyone that came in from the pontificate from before him, which was essentially Paul VI is because that interim period between him and was so quickly, of course, with uh, John Paul I dying so suddenly. So uh, when you looked into this information, did you find the names like Cardinal Baggio and or and um, and Vilo come up as as actors within this scheme? Um, I I personally didn't, but I I'm not sure. You know, I, I can't rule out that there's that there's some kind of connection that I'm just missing. But um, no, I I, di I didn't personally really run across those names um, at all. I'm sure all the liberal heretics in the Vatican have had cappuccino <laughs> or apple teenies. That's when they together put together at some the, point. Uh, uh, so they know each other by name, but maybe not they're they're not all conspiring formally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I just wanted to read. Um, because uh, Julie, I wanted to commend you because this is something that you do very well. As uh, like I said, you have a master's degree from Harvard in English. Uh, as a journalist, you are very good at writing a story that is very uh, fun to read as a, as just a, a story, but then also not going too far into speculations. Like you said, uh, at the end of chapter one, you say, "A few weeks after the conclave, Martini was hospitalized with heart problems." He had to receive a pacemaker. Some speculated that the stress of the conclave was not irrelevant. Asked once about what had happened in the conclave, Martini said, lead me not into temptation. But when asked what kind of Pope Benedict would be, the old cardinal grew effusive. Expect beautiful surprises, Martini said. End quote. So what happens now under Benedict? He has a very mysterious papacy, but he does seem to crack down a lot more than John Paul II did. So what happens with the St. Gallen Mafia crew under Benedict? Um, I think that I, I think that what Silvestrini did on the night of Benedict's election is really germane to this discussion because um, 
he, a Latin American cardinal who knew Silvestrini well, ran into him on the street outside St. Peter's and he looked defeated. Silvestrini looked defeated and he had this kind of dull anger inside of him. And um, he seemed to be completely unable to accept the, the papacy of Benedict. And he seemed convinced that he would be a, a transitional pope. Now, there's this other story that's told um, by, by two Vaticanese, Italian Vaticanistas. And it's about how, I think, a day or two um, into Pope Benedict's pontificate, there is an, a powerful Italian cardinal of the, of the Curia. So we don't know who it is, but he says two to three years, he will only last two to three years. And then he kind of waves him away with a dismissive gesture of his hand. And even if, I don't, I don't know if this was Silvestrini or if this was um, somebody else, but that was kind of the posture that the enemies of Benedict had toward him, where it was a posture of war. Um, basically, the Latin American cardinal says that um, Silvestrini seemed to have declared a form of war against him. And um, the book talks about different fronts of the war. Basically, each mafia member kind of has a different area to focus on. So Martini wanted a new council or synodality. So that was his thing. Um, then you had Casper. He wanted the rights of the local church versus the universal church and specifically applied to communion for the divorced and civilly remarried. And then you had Daniels. Daniels was agitating against Humanae Vitae and specifically trying to, trying to get at that by saying, oh, what about if you have a, a spouse um, who needs a condom because the, the other spouse has AIDS. Uh, so that, that was his front. Um, and then you, let's see here. And then Silvestrini was, Silvestrini allegedly, according to Nicholas Diet, leaked a conclave diary about what happened at the 2005 conclave. And the important part is it appears to have falsified how many votes Ratzinger got at, at that conclave. Um, it said that Ratzinger, the diary said Ratzinger had 84. And according to the most reputable sources, he probably had more like 100. Um, so this, this diary was part of a media campaign against um, Ratzinger. And the diary also really hyped up Bergoglio and the fact that Bergoglio was doing great. And a lot of people read that as um, a, a piece of campaign material for, Bergo for Bergoglio. And if I remember right, this diary was leaked probably within the first year or a year and a half of Benedict's pontificate. Um, so already, you know, they were trying to destabilize him and, and create buzz around Bergoglio. So th th those were some of the major fronts. Some of them become more important than others, like the the issue of humanity vitae and condoms be, kind of takes center stage in the way that in the Francis pontificate, communion for the divorced and civilly remarried kind of took center stage at the beginning. Um, so, so there's that. But um, yeah, it, the important thing to know is it's kind of a long war. Um, the the biggest thing I think is trying to trying to 
make make sure that Benedict is a transitional pope, make sure that he doesn't accomplish anything and that, you know, perhaps he can not not stay, um, not stay the whole time or 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 be induced to um, like I, I think they knew Ratzinger. I, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I, I think they knew that Ratzinger was open to resigning because Ratzinger had said different things like in 2002 that, um, you know, because we live longer nowadays, you know, he could foresee a Pope resigning and stuff. So it was kind of, I think, an Achilles heel. And they, they knew that about him. And I think they, they used that to their advantage. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the end of Benedict's pontificate and the beginning of Bergoglio. Um, so do you think that they created somehow created a situation where Benedict felt that he needed to resign. Is this the work of the St. Gallen mafia? So it's, it's so shrouded in mystery, obviously, but my, my understanding is if we just look at some of the, the key facts of, about, um, about what happened, there is an eerie amount of activity coming from this, this circle around 2012. And um, in, in 2011, Martini had already met with, with um, Pope Benedict. And um, it's, it's not completely clear what they talked about, but he had a private meeting. And then um, in 2012, um, Martini, he had a confidant that he spoke to, um, and this woman said that she, she, you know, I have the, the footnotes in, in the book, but she basically said that Martini was talking about how Benedict would pass and he hoped Benedict would resign soon. So why, why is he saying, I hope Benedict resigns soon? Does he know that Benedict is going to resign and he's just hoping that it's soon? Does he know that Benedict has made this decision on his own and, and, and he's trying to influence him maybe and say, you should resign sooner rather than later? We, we don't know. Did he plant the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, did he plant the idea of resigning into Benedict's mind? Um, it's, it's completely ambiguous. We, we don't know the answer to these questions, but we do know that by July of 2012, or excuse me, June of 2012, um, Martini and Benedict were meeting for the last time. And according to Martini's confessor, Martini told Benedict to resign. <clears throat> so um, I think that Benedict to me, the most important line that Benedict says is in an interview with Peter Sebald, and he says, one must never run away when the danger is great. So I think I think he, he was a man who never wanted to be Pope. I think he was open to resigning from the beginning. And I think that he also felt like the noble thing to do would be he, he can't leave while the house is burning down. He, he needs a moment of peace to perhaps 
let a better man, a, a better successor, a stronger successor, um, clean up the mess. But what, so was he just waiting for the moment of, of peace so that he could resign? Was, was Martini trying to convince, was Martini trying to convince him that, you know, oh, if you resign, Scola, Cardinal Angelo Scola, the conservative, he'll be able to pick up the pieces um, of, of this pontificate. The, these are some of the questions that I, I don't have definitive answers. This is speculation. Um, but the actual evidence that we have there at least allows us to pose some of these questions. Excellent. We've got about 10 more minutes, uh, but let's get into Francis. You, you really lay the framework and the architecture, basically the architectural drawing of the Francis pontificate. Um, but we've, and audience, if, if you want to ask any questions, um, but here's a question. Why did they want Bergoglio specifically? Um, and you quote an anonymous uh, cardinal from March 2013. So this is right uh, during this transition, who says, Quote, four years of Bergoglio would be enough to change things, end quote. So tell us about what did they see in Bergoglio and what was the plan? Um, I, I really like something that historian Roberto de Matei says, which is that Pope Francis is the true revolutionary, even truer than Rahner, because Rahner was a dreamer and a thinker and Bergoglio actually does things. He, he's a man of praxis. He's a man of practice. Um, remember, Canadian for the Divorced and Civilly Remarried, the Casper proposal. Um, when Casper tried to do it, what happened in, in 93 and 94? Well, um, they were very formal about the way they did it, and they had, they had texts about it, right? And then, Ratzinger's CDF clamped down on it. Okay, well, we have pretty reliable evidence reported by multiple Vaticanistas that in Bergoglio's diocese in Argentina, they were just giving communion to, to everyone who showed up. It doesn't matter if you're divorced and remarried or you're, you're cohabitating or, or what. So he was able to actually do what Casper couldn't do. Um, I think that they, I think that's a major reason, you know, that they had all these dreams and that they needed liftoff. They needed someone on the ground to, to actually um, incarnate them in, in practice. And so to me, that's, that's kind of the main draw of Bergoglio. I also think his incrementalism fits in perfectly with them. If they've been warring for these things since the, the 70s, at least um, on some of these areas. Um, Bergoglio loves to say time is greater than space um, as a cardinal and, and of course now as Pope Francis. So um, he, he has a keen understanding that sometimes, sometimes you can't push an issue anymore and you have to just let it go and then you have to give it time and then you have to bring it up again in a kind of sneaky way perhaps. Is there is there something about uh, let me think about Argentina as a kind of a unique country for a man like Pope Francis because 
uh, our, you know, for anyone who knows anything about Latin America, Argentina is not really, and I'm saying this as hesitant as possible, it's not really Latino in the way that we think of the rest of the culture of Central and Mesoamerica. It's very European. It's very German. It's very Italian. Um, Francis himself is a son of Italian immigrants. I think he grew up speaking Italian, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, And he also was educated in Germany for a while. So uh, it seems to me that there's something about that country where he's able to get away with all these things, where it's very much a European framework as far as how things are organized. Um, but it doesn't get the attention of all the things that the Latin American church always gets attention for. It seems like it was almost, uh, not in a providential sense, because it wasn't good, but in a sense of uh, the coincidences coming together where Francis was poised to kind of sneak in. He was almost unknown in some ways to the rest of the world, but he was a big player in a big diocese in a big Catholic country that kind of went under the radar. Do you think that played into how he kind of snuck up on us to the average person? Yeah, I, I think those are great points. I think um, one thing I'll mention is there's a very interesting text in the book called Confession of a Cardinal, and it's a French text and um, it's an unnamed cardinal, and I think it's Silvestrini or it's modeled on Silvestrini. Um, if, it's, if it's kind of a sketch, I think it's modeled on him. But um, whoever this person is, he identifies himself as a, a friend of Casper and Martini. And he, he says, He's speaking in 2005, it's published in 2007. It's after Benedict's election. He said, a group of us, and I'm paraphrasing, um, we wanted a cardinal um, who was outside of Europe, but with European roots. And we thought of Cardinal Bergoglio. So they, they specifically, whoever this was, maybe this is Silvestrini confessing exactly what they were thinking, or may, maybe it's, it's something else. But this text raises the point that, um, that they wanted some kind of bridge in the way that you were speaking of, someone who can connect Europe and um, the, the area outside of Europe as well. It's, it's an intriguing um, issue, definitely. Here's a question from our friend Anthony Abate. Do you think they have a successor in line for Francis? That that is a really great great question. Um, it's it's hard to gauge for me what kind of what the afterlife is um, of this group because a, a lot of these members, Cormac Murphy O'Connor. Um, etc. They're dead. Um, Casper is still alive, but uh, but most of these members are are dead. Um, now, I personally, this is just a hunch, but I th I think that there is some kind of dark horse that the liberals um, have all, are already thinking about and maybe have been thinking about for a while. And um, I think that uh, the ideas of, of the St. Gallen group um, that have become more mainstream because of the Francis pontificate, um, I, I think that he, he, of course, has created so many different cardinals and the, 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 the voting college, like it's, it's going to be in his image, um, it, it appears. So um, I, I, I would only say 
I expect a dark horse that no one is really talking about, but that's just speculation on my part. Excellent. Well, let me ask you, uh, Kennedy, you have a, any final question for Julia? Before I ask my final question. Uh, just one that has nothing to do with what you were saying, but you went to Yale and Harvard and somehow you're a faithful Catholic. How did that happen? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, well, I kind of hit out in the sense that um, I, I studied the Middle Ages. So um, I, I did medieval manuscripts, Beowulf. Um, my, my thesis at, at Yale was on Catherine of Siena like her, her book for medieval English nuns. So in some ways I was able to hide out from cultural Marxism, but not, not completely because um, I, I, I took a lot of classes with very crazy ideas that I won't go into. Um, but I, Me too. I, I had a really good, I had a really good upbringing. Like my, my family were, um, I was a cradle Catholic. My family prayed the rosary every day. I, um, yeah, if, if I had to give one takeaway from, from what I've just said, it's that, you know, parents like definitely, you know, if you're praying the rosary every day with your child, you're giving them like one of the best gifts you could possibly give. Because I, I feel like if I didn't have that foundation, it would be, it would have been so easy for me to lose my faith, um, at Yale or Harvard. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Absolutely, rosary every day. And th this, my final question is is related to this. Um, in in a sense, all all of us Catholics are journalists, and in, in in just the sense that uh, we read the news all the time, and the news is constantly coming after us. The church is in the news all the time. It's all negative. Um, what advice would you give to Catholics, just you know, normal Catholic layperson? Um, to keep their faith alive and strong, even when we, we are facing so much evil in the hierarchy? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to be as practical as, as possible and, um, you know, do something concrete. So we just talked about the rosary. The other thing, one of the other things I really believe in is the first Friday or first, well, I believe in the first Friday devotions, but, um, I also really believe in the first Saturday devotions because, um, our, our lady specifically spoke about the importance of first Saturdays for our times. And um, one thing I'd like to do is when I can, um, you know, in the past five years or, or so, you know, do the first Saturday. It's, it's five first Saturdays, of course. And then I'll just kind of do a perpetual first Saturday devotion as, as long as I can. Um, just do another five and then if you can do another five and and just I think it's brought many blessings to my life and um, I, I try to promote that as well. Um, we're at the point where my first article about Cardinal Martini, I wrote it in Crisis Magazine and um, I didn't know how to end after, you know, presenting like kind of like his plots against the church. This was before the youth synod. And I, the, the line that came to my mind at the end of it was just like, a, you know, after presenting all of this was, you know, that that's why we must pray and fast and speak out. And I, I think that's pretty good, um, a, a pretty good piece of advice for, for what we can do. We, we can pray, we can fast, and we can speak up. I, I mean, even, it's a, incredible, but e 
you know, I know there are a lot of negative things to Twitter, but I also think that when someone is when someone is publishing something that's not true or something that's dangerous and it gets ratioed by faithful Catholics, I mean, that sends a message that you can't just publish anything you want. So I think there are so many different ways that people people can speak up, um, whether it's on social media or it's um, with other Catholics or non-Catholics or, or so on. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Julia. That, that's great, great uh, advice. I love it. Pray fast, speak up rosary every day do the devotions so once again the link is below for saint gallon mafia exposing the secret reformist group within the church um get your copy today ebook e- 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 or hardcover so uh julia thanks so much for your time today any final thoughts for us final words about the saint gallon mafia um i i think the important thing to remember again is kind of aligned with what we just said. How does the story end? We, we, don't, we don't know what the next step is. We don't know how long the legacy of this group is going to last, but we do know that in the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. And so we know how the story ends. So I think that it's important when we're reading this not to get, give in to any sort of despair or to um, feel paralyzed. Um, it's important to, that's why it's so important to pray, pray and fast and do those things because you get perspective when you do those things, when you're looking at God, when you're talking to God, you, you have a, a supernatural perspective on, on this kind of news. Yeah, that's a great, great way to end this interview, Julia. Thank you so much for yeah praying for a supernatural perspective, which is an automatic effect of a prayer life. Uh, I th- so I think in the end, just strengthening your, your prayer life helps each one of us face the evils that are in the church or society or around us. Uh, so we're going to end, uh, once again, check out Julia's book. It's linked below. We're going to end as we always do with the, our father, uh, Julia, you want to just pray the second half of this. Yep. So I, I'm going to bring up the Holy face and I'll pray the Holy face prayers after the, our father. Name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them that hate him flee from before his face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King.